This last week, um, Celeste and I went up to Dingwall, and I had a really awesome hamburger. And one of the things that I liked about it wasn't just the meat and the cheese, was the bun, because a lot of good hamburgers sometimes don't have good buns. And I, I thought about that in relationship to this passage, because you have nine verses, which I'm calling the top bun, and then you have a couple of verses for the bottom. And then you have the meat in the center that we're going to look at. But what I thought about is, why does Luke spend nine verses on getting the cult and all the things that go on? Now, as often happens in my readings about the passage, John Calvin from Geneva comes up and he talks about this story, this nine verses. Because when, when you think about nine verses of, of ink, of space, of storytelling, you know, and I thought about the top part of the bun usually is always thicker than the, the bottom part. The top part is there to hold everything in place. But he says what Luke is doing with the borrowed colt, with no riding gear so they have to put clothes on it, He says, what you're seeing is what he calls the mark of a mean and disgraceful poverty. He is showing the poverty of Jesus. That to proclaim who he is, he is borrowing the colt, the clothes to make a saddle. That Luke is reminding us that Jesus was poor. Even in to get into Jerusalem where he is going, because he's told us so many times, he's going there to die and to be resurrected. But yet Paul would reflect on this idea in a passage that we have looked at in a sermon a while back from 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. One of the things in Jesus becoming poor, and Jesus having this visual demonstration of his poverty, is that people who are poor, people who are without so much, can identify with Jesus because he's not some middle-class guy coming in on a cart. He's not there with all the trappings of a horse or a chariot. No, he's coming in in poverty. And so his, his very entrance, even though it's called the triumphal entry, is an entry of someone who has nothing. Someone who has nothing, who is going to give everything 
And see, I think sometimes it's so easy for us to speed past these words. You know, we think about, okay, he's riding on a colt. Somehow there was this magic that he would get the permission to use it. No. This is a purposeful display by Jesus of poverty. Now, the bottom of the button, which is usually thin. You know, one of the ways I, I judge a hamburger bun is that when you get down to that last bite that's in your fingers, that it, the bun is still holding the meat and everything else together. And when I look at the last part of this passage, where the Pharisees are saying, who are in the crowd are saying, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you them, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And see, what I see happening there is that even the power of the religious leadership can't control the praise of Jesus. That power can't stop Jesus being praised. You know, when we, we, we read these tragic stories of people in China and Iran and Nigeria and other places where the church is being persecuted, where they're being imprisoned. And we know from past history that one of the things that happens when you send Christians in great numbers to prisons is it almost becomes a church plant. Because Christians take their singing and and their scriptures with them in their minds and in their hearts and in their attitudes. Oh, basically that started with Paul, didn't it? When he was there singing and praising God and then they had this earthquake and the chains were free and he led his jailer to the Lord. He led his jailer's family to the Lord. But when we think about what Jesus said about the rocks, is that there's always going to be people to praise him. That no matter what the power, no matter what the destruction, the disruption, all the things that can happen in churches, is that there will always be people to praise God. They won't be silenced. And here he points out, you know, religious leaders, these are people who have trained and spent their life Now, when I went to seminary, most of the people of my generation went to seminary to get a master's degree in three years. I had a chaplain, a Jewish Orthodox chaplain, who worked to me, and he went to seminary for 11 years. And he knew all of the distinctions because he he specialized in the dairy laws, that small area. But when... You know, sometimes you create something that you have no idea where it's going to go. 
how big it's going to get. I started visiting the planes coming back from Afghanistan to Lonsdale Regional Hospital in Germany when I was at Ramstein so that when they landed, chaplains would be on the plane to visit with the people who were hurt and who had come and who's still a long way from home. Wounded men and women. Because of my background as a hospital chaplain and other things, it was very easy for me to adapt and to figure out the logistics and all the things that went on. And so when I invited him to be a part of it, it was completely new. He knew all the rules, and he would admit this to you today. But he was trying to figure out, one, how not to touch any of the women that were on the plane. Two, how to touch any, not to touch anything that had blood on it, because he couldn't do that. And we worked it out so that he could have a part because he really struggled. How do I deal with the rules in my life with the needs I see before us? Now, here in this passage, these Pharisees are upset by this worship, by this adoration, by this loud noise, by this procession, by this this crowd. And see, that's, that's one of the things that sometimes happens in the church. And I know Presbyterians sometimes are called God's frozen people. But I also know that Presbyterians can get loud. That they can raise their voice. And see, I know that, that loudness, that volume intimidate some people. I remember when I was at Davis Monthan Air Force Base where, because it was Arizona, we had a lot of retirees. And because of the base we were at, we had a lot of brand new people who were just starting off their Air Force career. And so we had a conflict The young people wanted it loud. The older people, and there is a medical reason for this, because as you get older, and I'm getting there, you know, your your mechanism in your ears starts to not move as well. And so loudness affects older people different than it does younger people. So we try to talk with each group and say, okay, can you, can you work together? Can you accept the enthusiasm and the loudness of the young people? And can you understand that this, uh, this bothers older people not just because it's, they don't like it, it's because it hurts. But what I want us to walk away from this is Jesus is saying, the power of the world cannot, cannot silence the praise of Jesus. Now, I want to address something that is just kind of an aside, but I think it is an important aside, because you will hear a lot of preachers talk about the Palm Sunday crowd and the Good Friday crowd as if it was the same. 
And see, I don't think it is the same. The text doesn't say it's the same. It describes the crowd here on Palm Sunday as a multitude of disciples. And even the Pharisees recognized that they were his disciples. And then you had the crowd, the bloodthirsty crowd on on Friday. And what we have to realize is that Jerusalem at that time, because of Passover, was filled with all kinds of people. So what I think you have is on Friday, you have a counter demonstration by people who are angry with Jesus, who want to, you know, see somebody crucified because they want to get Barabbas off and they want to see Christ crucified. And so I I would just, mm, don't beat these people up who are celebrating Jesus, but realize like the twelve who kind of faded into the darkness of Friday, and poor Peter denied him, to realize that there are times when people just fade into the darkness because they don't know what to do. Now, I I love this phrase in here. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice. See, that's, that's two different parts of worship, to rejoice and to praise. Now, I spent maybe a half a day trying to figure out how to talk about joy. Now, C.S. Lewis is somebody who, you know, here is this older academic, but yet in his Christian life and then in his marriage later in life, Joy is just a part of his Christianity. And he separates joy as being different from happiness and pleasure. The joy isn't about power. He says it, it jumps under one's ribs and tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and keeps one delightfully sleepless at night. It shocks one awake with the other puts one to sleep. The private table of the one second of joy is worth 12 hours of pleasure. I think you would quite readily agree with me, C.S. Lewis wrote. I'm going to read you a verse from Hebrews that talks about Jesus' joy. Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says, Looking at Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he could see the joy through the cross. Just like I am told that women can think of their child after it is born and all that goes on with childbirth. They see through it because they know what's going to be there. See, I think when we come together as a church, joy should be on our mind and in our hearts. We should say, that is a place where I'm going to enjoy, where I'm going to rejoice because Jesus is there with his people. 
We live in a world that tries to imitate joy. We live in a world where a lot of people are just sad, they're bored. And the church should be a place where our joy in Jesus, our ability to rejoice in him, to do it with other people, to share it, that that should be one of the identifying marks of the church. And I realize that the, the joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so we can ask God for joy. See, I, 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 I tell you this because I struggle with joy. I want to be joyful, and sometimes I realize I'm being a grouch, grumpy, whatever is going on. And God calls me up short about rejoicing. See, if Jesus could see through the cross to the joy, I should be able to see through anything in my day for the joy of being in Jesus, of being in his presence. And then they praise God. Now, I find it very interesting when they're praising God, what are they doing? They're using scripture. They're saying God's words back to him. They're saying the Psalms back to him. One of the things that when we first got here, I was amazed at how many people knew a lot of Psalms to sing. Verse 38 says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. See, they realize that Jesus is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. It's a prayer taken from Psalm 118.25. And Hosanna means save now. The Lord, the king, will publicly die for his disciples. But they can get loud as a crowd, use scripture to express their love and their adoration. It was because of who he was in all of his mighty deeds that they praised him. Think about what they had seen. They had seen people raised from the dead, they had seen people healed, they'd seen people fed. They'd seen demons cast out. But you see, what about us? What about the mighty acts of God through Jesus Christ that we see? This week is, is the, when it's brought together, when he comes and he, he dies on the cross, where he's raised up. And then there will be Pentecost will come. Do you think of his death and his resurrection, those things that we've been talking about as the mighty acts of God that really deserve his praise and his glory. See, worship is very practical. What do you think is worth something? What brings you real joy and not just happiness or pleasure? To let the Holy Spirit work in your heart, to let it work together with us. 
Now, I want to close with an illustration from the Bible that I always thought was an interesting Sunday school story. It's not a Sunday school story, but it's a Bible story. Remember when David was coming back with the tabernacle? He's bringing it in. And the people are so excited, and he is so excited. And he's wearing an ephod, which in our day and age would be equivalent for a guy to wear gym trunks. Not down to his knees, but you know, workout kind of things. No top. And he is just celebrating. He is worshiping. And all of a sudden he looks up and and who does he see? He sees his wife. And he sees that look that husbands sometimes get when they have disappointed their wife. His wife was publicly embarrassed. And there's this short conversation and Jesus and David says, I've got to celebrate because of what God is doing. I know sometimes when people worship and they, they, they get into that celebratory worship, it just makes other people nervous because they wonder, you know, first they wonder what's going on. And they wonder, well, why isn't it happening to me? And you have all these mixed things. But you see sometimes God get a hold of somebody and it just, they are so excited because God is so real in their life at that time. And David says, and I will celebrate before the Lord. P.S. to the story is she never has any children. But you see, the use of Scripture, and you can use Scripture in your own worship from the Psalms to other places to express your adoration, to express your love. And I think the Psalms are a great place to train ourselves, to train our children how to worship God because of his mighty acts. So in in this passage, we've looked at poverty, praise, power. But in the back of our minds, we know Friday's coming. But Jesus chooses in his poverty to get on that colt to go into Jerusalem and to paint a big target on his back because they're afraid of what the people are saying because they're calling him the king. Now the religious leaders and the Roman leaders are going to be afraid of that. But yet we know that if people are quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. Let us pray.
Jesus, we, we are in awe of you. The idea that you became poor so that we might become rich in your grace. That you are publicly willing to accept the worship before you were put to death. We pray, Father, that the scripture would always guide our worship, would always encourage us. And Father, we pray that you would send down your spirit so that in our worship we would both rejoice with a real joy in our hearts because we are with you and we would praise you with a loud voice. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. I don't know if they do this in primary schools here, but one of the things, because I have a daughter who helps in a kindergarten class. See, there they have indoor voice, playground voice. Now you get to high school, indoor voice, and then sports stadium voice. And I think that's what they were doing going in, is they had their sports stadium. Because I've seen pictures of rugby and soccer games where people are just going, you know. They're excited over a soccer game, over a rugby game. We should be that excited about Jesus. And so as we come to our final, well, not quite final, because we'll have one after the benediction, but... We've combined a couple of hymns to again celebrate Palm Sunday. So let's sing with our celebration voices.